Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. And I'm Iskandar Ding, PhD candidate at SOAS University of London, specializing in Iranian linguistics. Welcome all. Today we are here to talk uh, to talk to Professor Alexander Jabari, the author of The Making of Persianite Modernity, Language and Literary History Between Iran and India, published just last March by Cambridge University Press and the series of the Global Middle East. Alexander Jabari is an assistant professor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Minnesota. His research focuses on the literature, history, and philology of the Middle East and South Asia. Did you know that from the 9th to the 19th centuries, Persian was the preeminent language of learning far beyond Iran, stretching from the Balkans to China? In this book, Alexander Jabari explores what became of this vast Persian literary heritage in the 19th and 20th centuries in Iran and South Asia, as nationalism took hold and the Persianite world fractured into nation states. He shows how Iranians and South Asians drew from their shared past to produce a Persianite modernity and create a modern genre that literary, that, which is literary history. Drawing from both Persian and Urdu sources, among others, Jabari uh, reveals the important role that South Asian Muslims played in developing Iranian intellectual and literary trends, highlighting cultural exchange in the region and the agency of Asian uh, modernizers. Jabari charts a new way forward for area studies and opens exciting possibilities for thinking about language and literature in the Indian Ocean world and beyond. Welcome, Professor Alexander Jabari, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had along the way? Sure. Uh, so I did I did my PhD in comparative literature uh, at UCI, University of California, Irvine. Um, and when I started grad school, I really didn't understand disciplinary boundaries, you know, that this is literature, this is history. Um, and so I wound up in this in this very theoretically oriented literature depart- department. Um, but I was taking classes with historians. I was reading history. I was wanting to do history. Uh, and that's kind of how I, I wound up as a literary historian. I still kind of refuse that boundary between the disciplines of, of literature and history. Um, but what, what I was interested in working on was was really was just Iranian nationalism. And India or the broader Persianate world, this stuff was not really on my radar at the time. Um, but in... I think my first quarter of, of graduate school, I did a directed reading on Iranian nationalism and read all of these kind of uh, groundbreaking monographs on the history of Iranian nationalism. And there was, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this kind of uh, great discovery of uh, and, and a lot of writing about 
Indo-Iranian connections and, and Iranian intellectuals going to India and, and making connections with Parsis, you know, Indians or Astrians, and the role that, that they played in uh, modernization projects in Iran and state building and nationalism. And that really piqued my interest. Um, but at some point, it occurred, uh, it occurred to me that the way that this story was being told, um, it was all about Iranians going to India and meeting with other Iranians or meeting with Parsis who they kind of saw as these like long lost Iranians who are, you know, stranded in, in India or had, you know, taken refuge in India. Um, and at some point I'm thinking like the Parsis are a very small minority. Are Iranians really just talking to each other in this huge country? Aren't there other people around? Aren't they talking to Indians? What about Indian Muslims? I mean, Parsis are Indians too, but the, in the Iranian nationalist imagination, they're kind of thought of as, as Iranians. So anyway, that was the kind of genesis for, for the project was this, this question, like, what about Indian Muslims? Um, as far as you, you asked about influential mentors, uh, that's the last thing I'll say on, on this. Uh, I was very lucky that also in this first year of uh, my graduate studies at UCI, uh, Ejaz Ahmed, the great Marxist literary theorist, uh, was visiting from India. Uh, and I got to take a seminar with him, and I was his research assistant at the time. Uh, and that was the beginning of a great friendship and mentorship. Uh, and so later when I when I went to India for, for research, I, I would meet with him and visit him in, in Delhi, and we would talk. And then he ended up coming to UCI permanently. Uh, I got to work with him in a more sustained manner. Um, and I just want to, um, you know, remember him him now because he he passed away uh, a year ago last month, and I miss him a lot. So thanks for asking about mentors. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so now I have to ask this question. I think a lot of um, our listeners will be very interested in, um, especially junior researchers and PhD students. The book is based on your dissertation, Late Persian Illiterate Culture, Modernizing Conventions Between Persian and Urdu at um, UC Irvine. Can you walk us through the process of turning it into um, the book that you recently published, The Making of Persian Modernity? What was the research process like and what was your writing experience? Oh, God. Um I wrote a really a really terrible dissertation, really very uh, rushed and, and sloppy and, and short uh, dissertation. Um, and so I think that actually made the process of writing easier in a way because when I when I sat down to write the book, I ended up writing at least half of it from scratch. And so I wasn't having to think about what to keep and what not to keep and and that kind of thing. I was I was just like, okay, this is I'm not going to use this. I'm I'm starting over. Um, but at least, you know, when I when I sat down to write the book, uh, I had already done a lot of the research, um, which had happened really, uh, a lot of it just happened very randomly, very serendipitously. Um, when I started to write my dissertation, uh, I was working at the UCLA library in the special collections, um, cataloging Urdu print materials. And that was a job that I just took to make some money. Um, but as it turned out, it really kind of shaped the project. Um, you know, I was cataloging tons of stuff from the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century 
uh, in Urdu, and this is Urdu materials that were totally engaged with the Persian heritage. There are all these commentaries on classical Persian texts, um, things that were written that just assumed the reader's familiarity with Persian, quotes in Persian that would just be left untranslated. And it was all really engaged with, with uh, the Persianate tradition. And this totally challenged that academic narrative that, you know, by the end of the 19th century, Persian and the Persianate framework is no longer relevant in India because I'm, I'm sitting there just for, for work, just cataloging all of this material that kind of proves otherwise. And so I ended up, um, that was one of the things I ended up writing about. And, uh, you know, I had traveled all over India and Europe and, and the U.S. to visit archives. And then some of the most important sources for what I ended up writing about uh, turned out to be right under my nose in, in Southern California. Amazing. Uh, let's now turn to uh, the book and its chapters. Uh, the book consists of four chapters with a preface titled Connections plus an introduction and conclusion. Also with very helpful conclusion sections after each chapter, which I appreciate, and a list of key figures and texts to orient the, the readers to the main actors uh, with their also short bio, uh, which is very helpful again. And uh, not to mention also the illustrations of the primary sources, which were really helpful to understand uh, the discussion, especially in chapter four. But first, Uh, Can you tell us about the beautiful cover, uh, as it shares an uncanny resemblance with the famous Safavid and Mughal painting of Emperor Jahangir embracing Shah Abbas, if I'm not mistaken? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, It's a a painting called Oshagh, The Lovers, um, by the Iranian artist Sadiq Tabrizi. You know, I think it's a a rendition of Gustav Klimt's famous painting, uh, Der Kuss, The Kiss, um, but as you pointed out, it also has these resonances with the Persian manuscript tradition and at the same time with kind of, you know, 60s uh, global modernist art. And so I thought, you know, this is such an evocative image. It captures so many of the themes of the book. I, I have to get permission to use this. So shout out to Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art for giving me permission for that. Interesting. I didn't see that coming. I really thought it's about the Safavids and the Mughals coming together. Uh, which which really connects with your book, but uh, yeah, yeah it, it bears many uh, meanings and connections such as your book as well. So let's talk, talk now about um, the introduction. Can you first introduce us uh, and sketch how the Persianate world or cosmopolis was formed, both as a conceptual framework that historians and literary critics and others have been using, and uh, as a historical experience lived by actual actors. Sure, yeah. Um, as, a, as a conceptual framework, you know, Persian studies as a field uh, really, I guess, took off in the last couple of decades. Um, and especially the term Persian has been a lot more in vogue in academia since I think the, the 2010s. Um, but as a conceptual framework, it, it originally goes back to uh, Marshall Hodgson, his book, Venture of Islam, 1975, um, where he coins the terms Islamicate and Persianate. Uh, and the term Persianate was supposed to offer a way of thinking about basically the Eastern part of the Islamicate world uh, that was connected in a way by shared use of Persian uh, as a language of, of power and learning without, you know, without having a term that would suggest that everyone in this part of the world was Persian, you know, was ethnically Persian or, or something like that, 
or part of a Persian empire or, or whatever. Um, and uh, as, a, as a historical experience, I'd say, you know, it's, it's tied to the historic spread of Persian, which was initially as a vehicle for Islam, um, but it didn't always remain that way, you know, especially in places like India, where the language becomes a language of, of culture and literacy uh, that all kinds of different uh, religious groups participated in and, and, and were part of. Thank you for this uh, useful introduction to, to orient the, the listeners. So uh, the book makes many interventions, among which uh, is a pushback against the the, the, the notion that uh, the, the Persianite world was fractured and, uh, and, and late Persianite became synonymous with a decline narrative, such as with the, with the Ottomans uh, and Ottoman studies. Um, so do you see your book uh, in that vein as, uh, as, as a revisionist history, maybe, of uh, late Persianite? Yeah, I think I think you can say that there's there's definitely some some similarities with um, what you mentioned the the Ottoman decline thesis. I think I'm, you know, the the biggest one of the biggest arguments that I'm making in the book uh, is against what I think is a really dominant idea, dominant paradigm uh, in Persian studies in South Asian studies that holds that Persian loses its relevance in South Asia. Uh, after 1857 or by the end of the 19th century, uh, and, and that the Persian it, uh, is, is really a, a pre-modern framework. It's a framework that is, is useful for looking at the pre-modern world, looking at the you know, 13th to 19th centuries or 11th or you know, wherever you want to begin that, but, but that the end point is definitely the 19th century. Um, and so I'm not denying that they're, they're obviously very big uh, changes. Um, and there's definitely, you know, Persian is used in an official capacity, has state patronage in a way that doesn't remain true, uh, through the end of the 19th century and into the 20th. Um, but I think we have to remember that Persian literacy was always a rarefied phenomenon because any kind of literacy was, was really limited. Only a tiny fraction of society was literate in any language, whether it's Persian or Sanskrit or, or whatever else. So it's not like you have these great masses of people who are reading Persian and then suddenly that disappears. Um, I think a, a different way of looking at this is that there's always an elite who knew Persian. And what you have by the end of the 19th century is mass literacy among non-elite classes of people who are becoming literate for the first time. Uh, and they're, they're becoming literate in languages that are deemed vernacular, like Hindi and Urdu. But in that same time, that the equivalent of that old elite is still using Persian. Uh, and that's true even to an extent today um, in, in South Asia, that, um, that this elite of you know, Urdu poets, for example, um, people who are writing Urdu literature today, especially Urdu poetry, religious scholars, these kind of people continue to learn Persian, continue to use Persian. If you go to a Deobandi uh, seminary, you're still going to read Sadi's Gulistan. Um, so it's not that the Persian it disappears, it's that you have the rise of a, a, a non, a, a mass culture that is not necessarily Persian it. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's one of the interventions that I'm making in the book.
th that's a very important intervention to make, especially with um, sort of, uh, let's say, uh, a, a view of, of Persian's history in South Asia as, uh, as, as its inevitable decline with colonial rule. So do you see the, the British uh, perceiving Persian as maybe they saw how the Normans occupied England and enforced uh, their language uh, on, on the English uh, or the move away from Latin to ethno-national languages in Europe? Did they see that when they encountered Persian or was it uh, another story as, as you tell in the book? Mm. Um, I mean, there's definitely the, the British are, are thinking about language in India uh, in in very in, in terms that are informed by European history and vernacularization in, in Europe and the idea that, you know, each people has a language, each nation has a language. And so this shapes the way that Persian comes to be seen as as foreign in India and tied to Iran um, and that's ultimately later taken up. Um, it's it doesn't remain only a, a sort of British colonial idea. It's it's embraced um, in in positive and, and negative ways um, by by Indians as as well. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely not I would say not an inevitable thing that um, you know British colonial rule did away with, uh, with Persian, saw it as, as foreign and, and sort of treated it differently. You know, early on, the British patronized Persian, just like the Mughals uh, had done before them. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, another one of the things I'm, I'm kind of, um, you know, try to emphasize throughout the book is the historic contingency of a lot of these developments, including that shift away from Persian on behalf of the British, which is really tied to the 1857 uh, uprising. And it's in the aftermath of that, that that really catches the British off guard. And, and they're kind of, you know, asking themselves, why didn't we see this coming? How could this happen? How could our subject peoples, you know, rise up against us? And this, And there's a conclusion that um, they've lost touch with the common man and they need to rule through languages that are authentically vernacular. And so according to that, to that logic, to that um, idea of, of, of that particular kind of model of, of nationalism and, and vernacular languages, Persian is a classical language. Persian is a foreign language. So it's not authentically Indian. So because of that, that, that's one of the reasons why how I want to show that, you know, that shift away from Persian is contingent on those historic events. It wasn't this inevitable kind of thing that, of course, like, you know, uh, Indians were always destined to to revert to their true native you know, selves or, or whatever, which is which is a lot of the kind of commonplace thinking, I think, around questions of, of language and, and nationalism. That really reminds me um, of. I mean, the decline of Persian as a language, I'm not saying Persian tradition, because the Persian tradition hasn't declined, as you said, um, uh, not only uh, because not only due to the continuous, there's a continual use of Persian, but also due to the fact that Persian aesthetics, especially literary aesthetics, and that that would include, uh, that would include uh, literary uh, topoi, um, in, uh, lexical items, they're still very well alive in um, vernacular languages. Um, but the decline of the use of Persian itself in South Asia always 
it intrigues me and always uh, and because it reminds me of the de- decline of the Persian language in Central Asia, um, which mm. um, is understood as the doing of the Russian Empire, uh, um, according to whom Persian and Arabic as well uh, represented the, the the ancien régime that represented the old the old order, and in order to to build this new um, well, especially um, when the Soviet Union came about, to build this new world, the new social order, we needed a new, um, uh, uh, new, new language, and this language was Turkic, and Turkic was very much promoted, even by um, Persian speakers of Central Asia, Tajiks, a lot of the Jadids of Central Asia um, at the turn of century. Uh, they were Persian speaking, but they promoted Turkic um, t- to be used um, as the mother tongue um, in the new style schools. Uh, so I wonder whether South Asian intellectuals also played a role in um, in the transition from Persian to uh, a vernacular. Did they also think in the, in the sense that, oh, you know, Persian represents this old tradition that we're trying to uh, undo um, and now in order to progress we need um, our mother tongue we need a new um, vernacular we need a new leading language so literary language so to speak yeah there there was definitely some of this there was especially in the realm of of aesthetics so not just in in terms of what language you're going to write in but what generic conventions you're going to use while while writing um you know somebody like Mohammed Hossein Azad uh is really arguing not just for um you know he's he's writing in 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 Urdu but he's he's really calling for um abandoning the the Persianate literary conventions um which he sees as kind of baroque and and decadent and um yeah, old, not not having the the freshness and and, and newness like uh, like you described, um, in as was the case in, in Central Asia, um, but but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of South Asian intellectuals who really re- resisted this shift um, because they were literate in Persian and they had a vested interest in in Persian. Um, you know, scribes, for example, many of whom, by the way, were were Hindus, Kayasts, um, they had invested in an education in Persian. Uh, and they were keen to defend that because they stood to lose their careers. Um, so I, I think, you know, uh, of, of course, um, there was the role of, of South Asian intellectuals in, um, I, you know, in, in, on both sides of the issue, I would say, uh, um, for or against, you know, continuing to, to use Persian and write in Persian. And, there's a, and you made a very interesting um a very interesting point in the chapter that that we are going to discuss later in the um, chapter that's called erotics. Um, a lot of people, I suppose, um, uh, made the argument that Persian, the reason why Persian was decadent was because uh, it um, represented certain um, certain eroticisms that um, uh, c- came to be seen as less favorable. But we'll talk about that later. Um, I also want to ask, um, you know how you respect. I I like talking about Persian and stuff as well, but there's always this question that I encounter. 
um, how do you respond to the criticism um, of the term Persian itself as lacking a sort of respect for indigenous subdivisions such as Turkic, Indic, um, and other Iranian languages such as um, Kurdish, etc., especially in a world, in our contemporary world, which is increasingly suspicious of these all-encompassing categories and very alert to indigeneity, independent of such categories, such all-encompassing categories. I mean, how do you respond to the opinion, oh, Persian was imposed on us by the Iranian empires? Um, You know, can you compare Persian um, in the same way as you... Uh, sorry, can you talk about Persian as an imperial language in the same way as you talk about other um, imperial languages, such as Russian and English, in fact? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I would say I'm, I'm not sure that I would agree that um, categories like Turkic, Indian, um, or Indic, uh, Kurdish are, are necessarily, um, you know, indigenous subdivisions uh, that the categories themselves are are I think as much a, a product of um, sort of modern colonial epistemologies um, which is not to say that they're they're woven out of whole cloth and don't exist before that um, but you know in, in general I'm, I'm very suspicious of the idea of indigeneity and, and this kind of quest for epistemological purity that we can like find the right terms the right categories that will be free of all of the the baggage of colonialism and, and modernity. Um, but that's a that's a whole other can of worms that uh, that we don't have to open right alive? now. Is it very much alive in people's minds, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, obviously as academics yeah. we criticize, we can sort of uh, scrutinize these subject uh, the, these concepts, but um <clears throat> it's very much so sorry I kind of cut your answer. No, no, no worries. Um you know at, at the same time what I want to say is there there's no perfect um model of study. I'm not trying to offer the Persian as a panacea that solves all of the other, you know, um, solves all of these kind of problems. So, of course, there are things in this framework that are more or less useful for um, for looking at different things. Uh, the Persian as a framework is going to emphasize things like literacy in Persian. So if you're looking at um, Kyrgyz oral poetry. You you would know better than me about the Central Asian stuff, but I think maybe the Persian is not your most useful framework for that. Maybe there is a better framework for for thinking about that and placing that. Sure. Um, but I I I think there's a real difference in the historical. You asked about you know Persian as being kind of imposed or a language of empire. Um, I think one of the one of the important differences between the historic role of, of Persian, again, certainly in India, with something like Russian in Central Asia, um, is that, you know, Persian was was not specific to any one community. It was patronized by Muslims, by Sikhs, by Hindus, um, by people who spoke a variety of different languages at home, um, who belonged to different territories. It was, it was largely spread uh, in the subcontinent by by Turks and Pashtuns. So it's not uh, something that is being learned and taught and read and written by just by like native Persian speakers. Um, 
In fact, this this concept of native speaker is is very new. It didn't doesn't really exist until modern times. And so all of this give um, Persian, you know, very different dynamics from those of the languages of modern European empires. Um, you know, it's it's hard to compare the Russian Empire imposing Russian in, say, Uzbekistan, with um, you know the the Maratha Empire in India, Hindu Empire um, using Persian for their court records. I think we're we're talking about uh, I, fairly I different things there. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So perhaps so there is there seems to be this curious trend in linguistics historiography um, over the last few years. I've uh, talked about languages as world languages, <clears throat> kind of um, coming from the perhaps the notion of the culture case. Um, there's a there's a book which um, came out in 2016 or a bit earlier called Latin Story of a World Language by Jürgen Leonhardt. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And um, and there's a book that came out two years ago called Aramaic, A History of the First World Language. Both of them were written in German um, originally. Aramaic books written by uh, Holger Zeller. Um, the understanding of a language, of a, I mean, po- possibly now um, a posteriori, we see as imperial languages actually organically developed into world languages. And I find it quite useful to talk about Persian. I'm not sure if there exists um, a a book on the history of Persian, on the cultural history of Persian already, uh, bearing the name to, let's say, Persian story or history of a world language. But it will be worth doing. It will also be worth doing that on you know, such languages such as Chinese, really, because these lingua francas, as you said, um, didn't become lingua francas um, in the same way as Russian or English did. And um, have you ever thought about doing the, a project like that? Or I, I yeah, in in my in my most ambitious dreams, I've I've dreamed of writing a, a book like that. I think it would it would have to be much much later in my in my career. Um, but there's, there's definitely people who have made these comparisons to, um, you know, some of the languages you mentioned, Chinese, Latin, um, you know, one of the, one of the really groundbreaking kind of edited volumes, uh, earlier edited volumes in Persian at studies was, um, the, the Spooner and, and Hannaway, uh, volume, uh, literacy in the Persian at world. Um, you might yes. know it. Um, and so there's a couple chapters in there, um, that really kind of think about Persian it, think about the Persian it and, and Persian um, along the lines of the Latinate world or the Sinosphere. Um, and so those those you know those kind of things go beyond my linguistic abilities. I don't work in Latin or or, or Chinese, but I, I think you're you're absolutely right that there there are really rich parallels out there, models out there for thinking about um, different ways that that language has has functioned, especially in the pre-modern world other than just the sort of um, 19th century imperial model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really connects well with your um, preface and connections uh, to, to get us thinking about the utility of the Persianite world and your critique of area studies. So I would like to ask you if it's an additive or an alternative uh, to area studies. Is it a methodology or uh, a geographic container? And how can it help us uh, 
see transregional and, and multilateral exchanges such as uh, what you described uh, in your book as homeless texts? Sure. Um, you know, I, I would say both the area studies model, you know, Middle East studies, South Asian studies, and the Persian studies, Persian studies as a model, um, they all have their own problems. So I'm not, I'm not proposing this as this, again, like this perfect, you know, replacement, oh, we should all forget area studies, we should all be doing Persian studies, they, they're all um, artificial to some degree, they all impose a kind of you know, artificial boundaries and an artificial unity on a much messier reality in one form or another in our studies. Uh, but, but I think the the point of um, using one framework over another is that one can capture aspects that another framework obscures. And so, here in my case, I saw the Persian as a really useful framework uh, that helped me see connections that were going on in literary culture and literature and in, in, in uh, you know, in intellectual history across uh, Iran and India, across a geography that the area studies model would have bifurcated and would have treated separately. And so just working within the area studies framework would have made it harder to see that because Iran would belong to the Middle East and India would belong to South Asia, you know, according to that model. Um, you mentioned the homeless text, so that's I'm 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 responding there to Mohammad um, Tavakoli Targhi's uh, book Refashioning Iran, um, which was a huge influence on this project. When I when I said earlier, I was reading all these studies of you know Indo-Iranian connections, and of course that was that was one of them, and it's an, it's an amazing book. Um, but I, but I, I take issue in my book with with his his notion of what he calls homeless texts, which is these important Persian texts that have a kind of ethos of, of early modernity um, that are, you know, Indo-Persian texts, Persian texts produced in India that are made homeless by nationalism because Iranians reject them since they're not from Iran, they're from outside Iran. And Indians supposedly reject them since they're in Persian, which is a language that's su- supposed to be foreign and, and belongs to Iran. And so these texts kind of fall in between, in the gaps in between nationalisms. But what I argue in the book is that, well, these these texts actually do very literally find a home in Urdu. And Urdu really continues a lot of the Persianate tradition. Urdu becomes a vehicle for the Persianate tradition to endure because those same texts that we're talking about, Urdu writers and thinkers continue to engage with. I'm thinking of things like, you know, um, Khane uh, Arzu's Musmer, this this linguistic treatise that that may have inspired uh, Sir William Jones's uh, discovery of uh, you know Indo-European language family. Uh, this is a text that people like Muhammad Hossein Azad are writing about in Urdu. So they're they're not homeless; they have a home uh, in Urdu. Uh, and to to bring this back to the question about area studies again, if I had if I had stayed within the bounds of Middle East studies. I ne- never would have been able to see that because I wouldn't be looking at India. I wouldn't be learning Urdu and reading these things in Urdu. And so it wouldn't just be those supposedly homeless texts that I would I would miss. I would miss the whole bigger picture uh, that I tell in the book of Iranian intellectuals learning from Urdu scholarship in the 20th century, which I was only able to see because I went and, and learned Urdu and, and, and ignored those, those kind of area studies boundaries. 
I'm glad you did because we're, we're learning a lot from your project uh, and, and more people should do this and try to break away from the, the confines of, you know, different area studies, paradigms and uh, graduate training and offered languages and all the difficulties that keep increasing year by year, uh, challenging us to carry such projects. Uh, so in, in, the, in, in the organization of the chapters, uh, the book operates on, on two uh, uh, sort of conceptual uh, scales, one of which is comparative and the other is uh, connected modes of analysis. Um, so how did you manage to so neatly uh, move between these two modes of analysis? And uh, what do you think we gain and lose uh, in both of them? Mm. Um. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, I, I kind of employ both both modes throughout the book. I would say in the first half of the book, um, there is more of an emphasis on connected analysis. I'm kind of trying to show how the project of developing literary history as a genre of writing um, is really a, a connected one. It's a shared one that's, that's produced by exchange between Iranians and Indians, uh, between people working in Persian and working in Urdu. Uh, and one of the, you know, the great ironies of, of Persian modernity uh, is that this shared project ultimately produces separate national or communal identities uh, where the Indians kind of get written out of the story of, of Persian literature and they actively participate in writing themselves out of that story. So the second half of the book I, I guess ends up um, the emphasis shifts more to comparative analysis because it's looking at some of the consequences of that kind of separation. And so comparison becomes a really useful tool there uh, that reveals uh, that also reveals again, the, the historical contingency of how things developed in Persian and in Urdu, because each, as they kind of start to take these different paths, each one, reveals how things could have gone differently in the other. They become kind of these almost like mirror images uh, of each other. So I think that the, the two modes are complementary, comparative and, and connected analysis. Uh, I think using them uh, together, which is not to say that they can't be useful on their own, of course, but, but that you know, using them together here, um, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm thinking about it now that, that you asked about it. I'm not sure that I was so intentional um, in, in the way that it turned out. But, um, but I think that, yeah, organically, uh, I needed, I needed to you to do both, to use both, to understand what I was writing about. Yeah. And, and they really answer, uh, your research questions, uh, well, and, and, and shifting between these two modes of analysis, uh, moving to the first chapter, uh, titled histories from Tuscaras to literary history. First, let's go back to the title. What do you mean by Persianite modernity? Uh, how was it interlinked with the nation state, uh, the making of national heritages, and the move from Tuskera, and, and if you can say a bit about Tuskeras as a genre, to, to literary histories later on? Sure, yeah. Um, so I use, I use this term Persian modernity uh, in a couple of ways. Um, most straightforwardly, uh, it's a time period. Uh, I call the period the kind of great period of modernization the, from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. I, I call this the period of Persian modernity because it's the period when 
the old, you know, kind of cosmopolitan connections that were of, of the Persianate world that were made possible by that Persianate framework. Um, those connections are still intact, but there's a new logic of nationalism and there's these new modernizing projects. And so modernizers can actually draw on the Persianate connections, can draw on their shared heritage and on each other and, and put that in the service of new modernizing efforts. Uh, and so that you can really see what that looks like uh, in looking at the transition from writing Tazkiris, these uh, these traditional biographical anthologies of poetry or, or kind of, um, you know, literary um, dictionaries, um, biographical dictionaries. Um, so the transition from writing about Persian poetry in that genre to writing in a new genre, which is literary history. Um, so you have, you know, Urdu language writers like Muhammad Hossein Azad, uh, Shibli Nomani, who are reworking the Tazkida tradition into literary history. And then you have uh, Iranians like the, the great literary historian Muhammad Taqi Bahar, uh, who are writing the first modern literary histories in Persian. And they're also drawing on the Tazkida tradition. And they're aware of what's going on in Urdu, just as the Urdu-speaking intellectuals are aware of what's going on in Iran. They're all reading each other, responding to each other, citing each other. And in that process of developing this new genre of literary history, again, those earlier Persianate connections establish a framework that allows the Indians and Iranians to learn from one another and to speak to one another, even though they're engaged with these national projects that ultimately kind of tear them apart. And so in a nutshell, that too is, is what I call Persianate modernity. It's, it's the form that the Persianate takes in these modern conditions with this new nationalist logic coming to, to undergird it. Right. And, and it's really a beautiful companion to the previous scholarship by the likes of Manikia and, and, and Sharma and others and, and continuing the telling the story of the Persianite and how it develops in the history of South Asia and Iran. And in telling the story of Persianite modernity, we encounter uh, the notions of erotics and how erotics were politicized and uh, were really imbricated in the history of, of Persianite modernity, as you call from the Bode to Bashful or from, uh, as I thought, from Persian bad to English uh, uh, bad. <laughs> um, so can you tell us about the function of erotics uh, in the Persianite literary traditions? Uh, was it ever contested before nationalism, uh, as we learn in the book? And what has changed for it to be excluded from the nation's perception of its literary heritage? Do you see this this chapter connecting uh, with, with the work of uh, like Asana Jumabadi and others who emphasize the, the role of masculinity and femininity and the perception of, of, of the nation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, to, to your last point, I'm absolutely, um, you know, building on and engaged with the, the, um, the work of, of Afsana Najmabadi and other historians, uh, Katrin Babayan, other historians of, of sexuality um, in, in Iran and the Persian world. Um, you know, historically, a lot of Persian literature was very open about erotic matters. It was a it was a core part of a lot of Persian poetry, especially Ghazal poetry. 
one of the most important Persian literary genres, uh, and not just not just erotic, but homoerotic. Um, and that's not also that's not limited to verse, not limited to poetic genres. Um, the Tazkira, these kind of literary uh, anthologies that I was talking about earlier, um, they're also very open. They anthologize um, poets and poetry, and they're very open about the love lives of the poets that they discuss. Sometimes they're they're even kind of gossipy. Um, and so then this this um, you know we encounter in the literary histories these first literary histories that are being written late nineteenth early twentieth century is a totally different convention um, around sexuality around eroticism. Uh, to your point about was it ever contested before nationalism? Um, yes, it was. It's not that the nationalists are the first to ever contest you know homoeroticism. There was. Um, there were differences between different poets, first of all, in how much they did or didn't participate in, in this tradition, in these conventions. Um, but then there was also always, for example, the ulama, the, the clerics, um, who would have rejected homoerotic practices on, on the basis of, of the sharia. Um, although I think one of the differences here is that they did not always necessarily reject the conventions of homoerotic poetry. They certainly viewed the practices as religiously illicit. But what's something that's really new here um, is something that, again, that becomes, you know, one of the generic conventions of of modern writing, of of the writing of literary history, is not just the rejection, but a kind of bashfulness around sexual matters and especially around homoeroticism. And you don't find this in the pre-modern texts. Uh, on these subjects. So, you know, Shibli Nomani, uh, this, this major Indian Muslim thinker, a major figure in, in developing modern literary history, he's making all kinds of apologies when he talks about the subject of homoeroticism in, in Persian poetry. He's like, oh, you know, this is almost beyond the pale to even talk about it, but I'm sorry, I have to talk about it and, and I really don't want to. And, you know, if you compare him to even Muslim legal scholars and jurists writing just a generation or two before him, they don't make all these apologies. They're not embarrassed by the topic. They condemn homoerotic practices, but they don't say, oh, we can't even talk about this. No, they, they get right to the point. Um, so it's, it's that new kind of conventional silence and prudishness um, that is something that is really distinct from the past. Um, on that topic, um, you mentioned that uh, specifically... Um, that uh, Muhammad Hossein uh, Azad's in in his work Abi Hayat, he um, kind of sees the Indic tradition. You meant you mentioned that there's a that there's a return to the uh, in, not probably not return a preference, let's say, for the Indic tradition and the British Victorian English Victorian tradition uh, over the Persian um, um, erotic tradition. Um, and um, I, I wanted to ask about the in, the Indic tradition. Is it really romantic and prudish, or is it selectively so? Um, well, the, is it because the, the Urdu speaking modernizers wanted to see the uh, to only see the prudish elements, or to select a prudish text, uh, prudish text, in order to prove that Persian was not prudish and what per- Persian was bawdy? Um, or is it because, let's say, Braj Pasha um, literature 
really was um, more prudish and more romantic and you know, and so on. Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, it, it's definitely. Um... Of course, there are there are chaste, you know, uh, Indo-Persian and, and Persian texts, and there are racy, you know, Indic texts. So, so of course, there's there's an element of of kind of generalizing and, and and cherry picking, you know, going on here. But I think what what you know, what people like Azad, for example, are 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 talking about is is a question of the dominant conventions that that, as I said, the the dominant convention. Um, in Persian poetry around love was, 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 you know, was homoerotic and you have a lot of stock imagery, language conventions that are about men gazing at beautiful boys. Uh, and the standard or the dominant convention in Indic, so-called Indic literary traditions like Brudge um, are a hetero, heteroerotic convention. It's the, the convention is often, you know, a woman describing her, her love for a man. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's that those conventions, that heteroerotic convention is more easily compatible with um, a kind of, you know, British inflected romanticism or, or, or prudery for that matter around homoeroticism. Um, the, the sort of natural imagery of um, that that's used in, um, in, in some of the sort of Indic poetry is, is seen as, as being more compatible um, with British romantic poetry. Um, but, but again, it is, it is, yeah, of course, a, a generalization as well. And you, you can find all sorts of things in both, in both traditions and both conventions. Of course. That, that's very, thank you very much for the clarification. I, yeah, that's very useful to know. Um, um, so the, it's not because it's erotic, uh, or it's because the erotic is, is the wrong sort of erotic, I suppose. Not, i.e., the, the. I mean, obviously not wrong, but <clears throat> it's the non-acceptable type of erotic, i.e., the homoerotic mm. type of erotic that um, that made, let's say, the Indic tradition more preferable because it was more um, heteroerotic, right? Um, speaking of. Uh, gazing at beautiful young men, there is a ubiquitous topos in uh, Persian literature of um, looking at the saki, the the uh, the the wine bearer, the, or the cup bearer, the wine pourer, let's say that works in the t- uh, tavern, and um, you know, the, the, um, as many people who are familiar with Persian um, poetry will know, that it is because the 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 saki. Um, usually, let's say, um, is a young boy reflects God's beauty. So, I'm sure you're aware that there's this constant debate um, in the study of Persian literature on whether the love that is talked about um, uh, in the poetry is actually love to a real person or divine love, and. Um, um, did any of the modernizers use the divine love, let's say, um, explanation um, to justify um, the the love explored or the erotic expressed in um, in Persian poetry, and um, and that actually brings us to another 
very much contested topic at the topos, which is the consumption of wine. Um, I, I, you know, I've been wondering what the modernizers' um, attitudes were towards the the topos of wine. Um, yeah, did they? In 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely one one of the strategies, right, for for dealing with um, you know having this this pre modern heritage that is totally at odds with the values that you hold as a modernizer, which are which are again very um, you know informed by a certain vision of of uh, British Victorianism. Um, one of the strategies then is uh, is to interpret everything, all of this kind of homoerotic love as as you said, as as divine love, as as mo- metaphorical love, you know, metaphor for God's love. Uh, the interesting thing is that despite that being an avenue for um, for dealing with that contradiction, you still have a, a, this convention in the literary histories to either just be totally silent about the subject of, of sexuality, of eroticism or to emphasize how distasteful they found the subject. I, I almost, you know, it's, it's almost like the, 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 the divine love explanation just cannot explain away everything and cannot apply to everything. And they have to admit, okay, there's something more than, than just a metaphor going on here. And it, and it makes, it makes us uncomfortable. Um, and what's interesting is that this is very different from how even very sort of orthodox uh, Muslim think- thinkers like Shibley talk about uh, something like wine. I don't recall him ever making all of these apologies talking about wine. He never says, I cannot even discuss this subject. It's so distasteful. You know, uh, Again, for the pre-modern Islamic scholars and, and jurists, sodomy is forbidden, just like drinking wine is forbidden. But the homoerotic stuff becomes so taboo um, to, to even discuss in a way that other, you know, sinful topics like the consumption of wine do not. And this is shaped by, of course, things like British penal codes in colonial India. Uh, but even in Iran, the conventions become very, very similar. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize here, um, that it was a convention, just like writing about the love of young men in a ghazal was a literary convention. It wasn't just a, you know, a, a, you know, reflection of, of, of reality, but, it, but, a um, but a literary convention of this is how you talk about love, or this is how you write a good poem in the same way, this kind of performative prudery in the literary histories, that was also a convention of the genre. I argue that's how you showed that you were a serious scholar participating in a modern genre that was different from pre-modern genres of writing was you took this kind of distance from, um, from that pre-modern kind of unruly sexuality. And you said, no, this is, you know, this has to be condemned. Thank you very much. Um, wait, sorry, maybe cut this out later. Who is gonna, because, uh, how... so yes. Um, now let's move to your third chapter um, called Origin Myths, Indigeneity and Hybridity in, in, in National Narratives. What really stood out um, from this chapter when I was reading it was how Aryanism um, had, had different functions in the Iranian space and the um, subcontinental uh, space. In the Iranian space, that almost made Iranians uh, indigenous to the land. And in the subcontinental case, 
it made the Hindus um, uh, indigenous uh, by sort of emphasizing um, on the non-indigenous, i.e. Muslim heritage um, of the Muslims, um, uh, which was uh, heartily embraced by um, Urdu-speaking or other language-speaking uh, Muslims of the sub subcontinent. I had a um, question um, about Aryanism in Iran um, specifically, because anyone with a bit of knowledge of Indo-European languages and Indo-European peoples uh, will know that it, to accept Aryanism is in fact to accept non-indigeneity. Non because uh, Indo-Europeans and therefore Indo-Iranians uh, were nomadic peoples, um, which effectively means that um, Persian speakers, uh, Iran uh, Iranians, if they really see a sort of connection between themselves and the ancient Aryans, in, uh, ancient Indo-Iranians, and by extension Indo-Europeans, did not actually um, uh, always live uh, on the Iranian present-day Iranian plateau. So have you come across in your research any Iranian discourse that accepts the non-indigeneity of Iranians uh, in their current homeland and seeks to reconcile that with the concept of um, Vatan, which you mentioned in the chapter? Mm, that, you know, that's such a, such a great point. Um, you know, I argue in, in the chapter about how um, or show in the chapter how Iranians kind of take up this philological model of of genealogy of of language and 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 of a of a kind of nation becomes adopted for nationalist purposes as a as a national history. But I think you know as you point out here, um, it's not that they that their that their um, you know identity then is just coming straight out of. Uh, Indo-European linguistics and accepting all of its conclusions, it's it's again, it's it's always selective, right? It's it's taking this one bit that they like and ignoring the other stuff. Um, so, um, you know, Mustafa Vaziri's book uh, "Iran as Imagined Nation," I think, if I remember right, that he deals with this. Uh, it's a very kind of polemical book, but is one of the first to question a lot of those myths of. Iranian nationalism, but that's that's a piece of contemporary scholarship. So the to your question, the Iranian nationalists um, that I read definitely did not emphasize being nomads. Um, they were about a particular um, particular notion of of indigeneity, which was about um, Persian and uh, and and the the Persian language and Iranian linguistics going back only to a certain point, right? And so uh, uh, being opposed to Arabic, which was which was seen as, as foreign. Um, but in terms of, of nomadism, you know, they, they identified with the Pahlavi state's efforts to, to forcibly settle uh, contemporary nomadic peoples in Iran. So they definitely wouldn't have thought of themselves as, uh, as, as nomads or as not as native uh, to Iran. Right, yes, the... The selective um, um, acceptance of um, of history, um, well, we've seen in every nation state, really. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that really ties very closely with the question of script, 
in chapter four, print uh, typography, orthography, and punctuation. So we know the story by the tw- by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, the nationalist fever is on the rise. Uh, Turkey switches from uh, the Arabic-based script to a Latin-based script. Uh, Cyrillic takes over uh, in, in, in Tajikistan. Uh, Hindi becomes increasingly uh, Sanskritized. And uh, Iranians uh, are debating which uh, script to, uh, to adopt for their language. Um, and on the other hand, uh, print also comes in the picture increasingly. And uh, in the scholarship, there is a growing interest in studying the transition from manuscript to print culture in Islamic studies, uh, mostly, such as the work of Nal Green in Bombay Islam, talking about industrialization and print, and Ahmed al-Shamsi in his book, Rediscovering the Islamic Classics. So how did your book address uh, these questions, uh, uh, questions such as canonization and the production of printed texts? And how did that, in turn, change uh, the ways and the relationship between scholars and readers and how they interacted with uh, Persian literary production? Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned you know, a number of people have, have worked on these, these questions of you know canonization, for example, uh, with the rise of print. I would add uh, Kevin Schwartz's book, uh, Remapping Persian Literary History. That's another one that kind of addresses the, the Persian canon specifically. Um, one, one of the things I was interested throughout the book, uh, and I think I talked about this a little earlier, is, is these kind of, um, you know, alternate possibilities, how things could have gone differently, viewing all of the developments in, in that process of the modernization of the Persianate tradition as historically contingent. Um, and so in, in this chapter, in the print chapter, I kind of focused on uh, how a page of text ends up looking during the transition from from manuscript to print, um, rather than the question of which texts were printed, for example, or the question of kind of canonization. So why, for example, uh, did movable type in the Naskh script uh, take off in Iran, whereas in South Asia, uh, Urdu speakers were were so attached to another script, Nastaliq, um, that was not possible to be uh, reproduced with movable type such that they never really adopted movable type and they used lithography um, basically until uh, the 1980s. Um, another one of those kind of alternate possibilities, and you mentioned this about, about script, um, was you know different, different uh, scripts altogether rather than calligraphic hands, I guess I should have said, you know, Nasr and, and Nastalir. Um, but but the question of script altogether comes to the fore in Iran in a way that it really doesn't in, in South Asia, uh, or at least for, for Urdu speakers, it doesn't. Um, and, and, and again, another, an, an additional alternate possibility, set of alternate possibilities is the question of, of punctuation. So as, as Persian and Urdu move from manuscript to print, they adopt European style punctuation, you know, commas, periods, uh, paragraph breaks, that kind of thing. Uh, to show how the manuscript tradition had its own ways of punctuating texts, which could have been adopted in print culture and weren't. And so that is, is really, you know, to your question, that, that really shapes the way that uh, somebody reads uh, 
you know, interacts with Persian literary production, reads a, a Persian text. How is how is the text punctuated? Shapes how you're how you're going to read it, and all of that is kind of um, is again is, is things that were contingent on particular parts of of history and the shape that these these histories took in in Iran and South Asia, and, and could have gone very differently. Right, uh, and and it's really useful to think about not just the question of. Uh, script for Persian, but also overall uh, from the Ottoman lands to South Asia, this question is really pressing at this time. And this chapter is really helpful to think about that. And uh, the images that you included are really amazing. (laughs) And they would be of interest, not just to cultural and literary historians, but also to sociolinguists who are interested in these questions. so now we move to the concluding part of your of your book. Uh, the book really connects to many fields and many geographies and histories. And uh, I would really recommend this book uh, to the listeners who are interested in the Indian Ocean world because uh, the perception that Persian is limited to, let's say, the gunpowder and empires, so-called, but that's not true if somebody follows your uh, tweets, uh, which are beautiful <laughs> investigations of etymologies and tracing these fleeting uh, uh, lexical items in Southeast Asia and Swahili uh, and other languages to, to showcase the potential of, of the Persianite in the Indian Ocean world and beyond. Um, so I really recommend uh, the listeners to, to check these uh, etymological uh, discoveries that you're making. Um, so the making of Persianite modernity, who would you hope will read this book uh, beyond people who are interested in, in, in Persian and Persianite? And what sort of impact would you like it to have? Um, oh, it's it's definitely a, um, a book that's speaking to an academic conversation, you know, to conversations going on in, in Persian studies, Iranian studies, South Asian studies. Uh, I'm really hoping especially that um, people in Iranian studies will will read it and, and learn about um, how useful Urdu can be as a language for doing Iranian studies. Um, because I think, you know, I think it will be very interesting. I hope it will be very interesting to, to readers interested in South Asian studies and interested in India and, and, um, and modern South Asia, but uh, Pakistan as well. But um, but I think some of the arguments that I make in this book are not totally mind-blowing things for, for people in South Asia. They know that, that Persian remains relevant beyond the 19th century. I think these are some of these conclusions that I draw are, much, are going to be much more surprising for people who are working within Iranian studies. Um, but but beyond, beyond that kind of narrow academic conversation, um, you know, I hope that in terms of you asked about the the impact, I, I really hope it will offer a useful framework that other people can take up, that, that people will take up the framework of, of Persian at modernity and be able to look at different things that, that maybe it can be useful for thinking about, you know, things that I didn't, wasn't capable of, of addressing, like, you know, Ottoman nostalgia in Turkey uh, or Ottoman nostalgia in Pakistan, for, for that matter. That's a whole other topic. But, um, you know, that I think there's, there's a way of uh, I, I'm hoping the book will show that the Persian it remains a useful framework, uh, not just as you said, not just for this limited ge- geography and this limited time period, but in, in a number of other places at times as well. 
well, it, ha it has indeed um, inspired me a lot. Um, now I'm very determined to, to, you know, at the moment I'm doing a, a PhD on uh, Iranian linguistics. It's a languages only, uh, especially um, Yaganobi linguistics. But I've got this um, pet project um, which um, investigates Sino-Persian texts because mm. um, as much as uh, the, the South Asian part South Asian history of Persian uh, language and uh, literacy um, has been systematically neglected in Iranian studies. Um, the Chinese side of the story um, has also uh, been in the same category. And not, not a lot of people are actually aware that um, there is a body, not obviously not as voluminous as the South Asian um, corpus, but there is a, there are very interesting Persian texts written indigenously in China and um, and that's something I suppose for people interested uh, to look at as well and another point I want I wanted to add is that um, as much as uh, Urdu is very useful for Iranian studies for the study of Iranian or uh, <coughs> Iranian history and the history of Persian literature uh, Armenian um, on the other side of the world um, well of the continent um, is also very useful, especially for the study of um, uh, early Islamic Iran and pre-Islamic Iran, its literature, its customs and language, um, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, so um, I, I, I'm i really you know, excited and really inspired after having read your book because it's a really good start for people to um, just open their minds and think outside of um, the boxes of area studies and um, and do something that can link traditions which organically have to do with each other together in the academic discourse. All right. If, and if Absolutely. I, if I may add also about the potential of vision, I'd, I was thinking about the work of Araj Khazani's uh, The City and Wilderness uh, to show the potential of the Persianite for places like Myanmar that usually don't figure in people, you know, area studies studying Iran or, or even South Asia for that matter. And, uh, and you, be ha you have been alluding to the impact of uh, the Persianite also and uh, on the Malay world as well. And as I see elsewhere, um, in fact, uh, in, in the Persian Gulf as well, you have uh, scholars crossing the Gulf and bringing with them the Persianite traditions to the Arab side of the Gulf and to Lebanon and elsewhere. So there's a lot to do. And your book is definitely sketching uh, uh, many maps for us to, to navigate in our pursuit of studying uh, the Persianite world. So thank you so much, Alexander. We've, we've taken a lot of your time. And uh, before letting you, you go, I would like to ask you, if you have current projects or something you would hope to work on in the future? Sure. Uh, I'm working on um, three kind of book-length projects at, at the moment. Um, the first is next book on, on Muslim practices of philology and, and, and language learning uh, in the Middle East and, and South Asia. Um, and connected to that research, um, I'm working on... Uh, together with my colleague Shahla Farqadani on a full-length annotated translation of uh, of Musmer, this this linguistic treatise by um, the 18th century Indian Muslim scholar uh, Khana Arzu, 
So that's kind of a, a book length translation. Uh, and then I'm also working on a very different book on uh, modern Iranian culture, literature, and media. Uh, and I have an article uh, coming out soon, which will be one of the chapters of that book, which is on the figure of the Indian in Iranian novels and films. Uh, so keep an eye out for that, I guess. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. It's great to hear. That is very interesting. And we'll be looking forward to reading these projects. Uh, so thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the making of Persianite modernity, language and literary history between Iran and India, published by Cambridge University Press. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. And Iskandar Din. Stay tuned for, Stay the, tuned. for the next episode. Show to this game. Show to this game. <laughs> of of the, the Indian Ocean. Yeah.